0: So, Renato, Trump has asked for a delay in the Mar-a-Lago trial until after the 2024 election. Is this just a bunch of BS? Ah,
1: it's complicated. I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer and a legal analyst.
0: And I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm an ABC News legal contributor.
1: And we're here to help you break down topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet.
0: So... I'm just returning from a week in uh, Ireland, Scotland, and and England, and just catching it was blissfully um, far away from the craziness here. But I know one big development, Renato, is uh, the court filing by Trump's lawyers in the courtroom of our favorite Judge Eileen Loose Cannon uh, asking for a delay. Now, just so we have the, as they say, procedural posture um, set up, there was initial an initial trial date that kind of comes with the, uh, you know, part of filing charges, which is was was August, and that was just never going to happen. I mean, everybody knew that. Um, And then the Department of Justice requested a date in December, which from what I understand given how SIPO works and everything, probably also unrealistic. Um and now Trump's lawyers have asked for a trial date after the election, so after November 2024. So I guess the question is, was it realistic that there was going to be a trial that could happen after December, but before next November to begin with.
1: So I don't think so. I I wrote a column, I think, right after the charges in Politico, in which I said that this trial is not going to happen until after the election. Um, Brian Greer, who was on the podcast before, the Secrets and Laws on Twitter, who was the former associate general counsel of the CIA, said that he thought it was very unlikely, highly unlikely we would have a trial before the election. Um, and so I, I think that was always sort of a pie in the sky wish. Um, and I think there's been I will just say on that point, on a lot of points related to this, Asha, there's been a lot of disinformation. I have seen a lot of deceptive uh analysis out there. Um I think will in some cases willfully deceptive, um, candidly. I think uh, people who should know better are saying things that I think are not true. Like what? Um, but well, saying, for example, that um, you know, this this air this, uh, if if Judge Cannon grants this, this should go up on appeal. Like we should, that J- Jack Smith should immediately appeal this crazy order, um, you know, setting a schedule for after the election. um, You know, the, it, it, as an appellate clerk, you are an appellate clerk, you know, the standard of review for a judge's scheduling orders. In a, it's abuse of discretion. And it go, it's like abuse of discretion plus, which is essentially there's all sorts of case law out there that appellate judges are not going to. Touch uh, the scheduling of a district court judge. Um, there was one commentator who suggested that this would be a recuse There should be a recusal motion that's brought if she, you know, you uh, schedule this after the election. I think in the end, if you played this out, if the defendant's name was John Doe instead of Donald John Trump, and you had a re- whatever random def- competent, skilled defense lawyers, this would happen in 2015. 99 times out of 100 anyway 2025 you mean yeah 20 that i said you said
0: 2015 i I wish it was happening in 2015 that we could like go back in our time machine and our our delorean and you and i would
1: we would be like a back to the future like this you know we would go back yeah we think we were changing the world by like whatever you know helping hillary out in 2015 and it turns out we mess up the timeline in some way exactly um But in all seriousness, I think this would happen in 2025. Now, the way it's, I think that the way that Trump's attorneys have gone about this is a little ham-handed and a little out, out, like out front. In other words, like usually defense attorneys, the way you get delay in a case is through a thousand cuts. Oh, we need a little more time for this. Oh, a little more time for that. And we've already seen some of that. Like, oh, Nada hasn't even been arraigned. This attorney hasn't signed up for his clearance, like, or put his clearance form in. Like all these little delays that add up over time and prosecutors can complain about it. I see some former prosecutors complaining about it on Twitter, but that's just like par for the course. OK, I practice all over the country and maybe you, you could. I'm sure there are prosecutors in their offices are grumbling about me doing the same thing. I don't respond to their emails right away. I'm just not in any hurry to move their cases along. Um, and, you know, because my clients interests are diversion from the government's. So that's just the reality of how. Criminal defense works in the United States of America, and so the idea that this was going to rush on some speedy train to, to trial when the defense didn't want it to, just unrealistic. I mean, so I, I think that's one thing. The other thing is there's just been sense, Asha, that like the only argument that's being made by Trump is these. Uh, there are some absurd arguments filing about the election, like you could never have a, a, a jury that was fair prior to the election. But presumably after the election, you could.
0: Yeah. How would that work after the election? Yeah. Like, there's just some... The same pool. Yeah.
1: Total BS arguments in there. But like most of the motion is full of like standard arguments. Like there's over 400,000 documents that have been produced. The government says there's more documents that are going to be produced, but we don't know when and, and how many those are going to be. Or, you know, uh, our trial schedules are very heavy. And so during this month and that month and this month and that month, the... Uh, defense counsels are busy. Um, and I understand the people who are listening to this are like, well, hey, this is really important. This is a, our entire democracy <laughs> it's at stake. If this guy pushes this till after the election and becomes president, he's going to fire the attorney general and, you know, put Jeffrey Clark in there and subvert our entire democracy. And I don't disagree with that, but that's just not how our criminal justice system is usually constructed to deal with that problem. And so, it's totally normal for defense attorneys to be like, yeah, I'm really busy. We got to file a lot of motions. This case is really complicated. There's like tons of documents. It's going to take me forever to review them. Like, that's just like that's just like any other case.
0: So why why not just do it that way? I mean, especially given that this involves classified procedures. So there are, you know, actual You know, mechanisms to kind of even exacerbate any ordinary delays that you might be able to do. Why not do delay by a thousand cuts? Like, why do this crazy filing? Is there a PR purpose to this? Or is it an appeal to Judge Cannon to treat him differently? Because he's a former president, presidential candidate. We already know that she's a little bit, um, sympathetic to those arguments that he's special because She's treated him differently before, right? Like she, in her, in the civil case that Trump filed, her reasoning was explicitly based on the fact that as a former president, you know, he, the stigma of being charged with a crime is just somehow greater for him than anyone else. Um, and that that is what justified um, appointing the special master, et cetera. So what's what's the purpose of doing of actually like saying kind of the quiet part out loud, which is we want to wait till after the election so that if I'm in power, I can totally like throw this out.
1: That's the $64,000 question. Although I'm also, I'm dating myself, right? I, maybe I'm going back at a dive machine, but whatever the the million dollar question, okay, uh, that you're you're asking, Ash, I think it's a good one. I, I wouldn't have done what they did. I think I said that. I thought I've described it. I think at CNN yesterday, they described it as ham-handed. I think that's the way I would describe this. It's a little... Out front, but I I do think there's a. As I reread it last night, um, I for another yet another time because I was planning to write a thread, which I ended up not writing on Twitter. um, I reread it. I think there are a couple of reasons why they did this. One is the government's given them a lot to work with here. I mean, Jack Smith's vigor to get this like to an extraordinarily speedy end is uh, unusual for a prosecutor. And I would be reacting to that if I was the defense attorney on any case. Like the prosecutor was like, we're on some speed train and I'm like, okay, we're gonna get off the train. Uh, because this is this is crazy. The idea that you're gonna speed my defendant to the to the finish line when he's got all sorts of arguments and rights and yada yada. Second of all, I think they wanted to put a marker down. So like let's just put let's just say it wasn't Judge Cannon. I do think part of it might be that they're appealing to Cannon, like you said, I don't know, but I think if this was the typical judge. Like they would look at this motion and they would say this. There's a lot of good arguments here, defense. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to set a trial date for middle of you know June next year. And then you can add. We haven't even gotten to discovery yet. As discovery, the discovery process unfolds, if there are additional issues, if there are additional productions, if there are motions that delay things, we'll reconsider that at that time. Or a judge could say. I'm not going to set a trial date yet. Um, I'm going to, or I'm going to move the trial date, you know, or I'm going to leave whatever trial date for now, hour or, or or something along those lines. I'm going to take these under advisement. Let's wait a month or two or, you know, whatever, get more information. I think that's how most judges would react to this. But I, I don't think that, I think there are very few judges who would take the position that people on Twitter want want to be taken or that maybe some commentators are suggesting, which is that like, this is crazy um, no, we're going to be on the fast train because, you know, the, the oh, generally speaking, in a circumstance like this, the focus of the judge is on the rights of the accused, um, not all of these ephemeral concerns, uh, that are unusual in this case. And the defense can appeal, the generally the, the prosecution can't. Uh, and so, um, as a practical matter, um, you know, the, the judge has to be concerned about trying the same came case twice and having a situation where there's an error. Uh, you didn't allow this motion to be done. The defense attorneys are saying, we well, didn't have time to read the documents. You're like, we're pushing forward anyway. I We didn't have time to make this motion, but we're pushing forward anyway. Like, that sort of stuff is very dangerous from, you know, in terms of creating a record.
0: I mean, this whole thing, and I feel like I'm a broken record because I always bring this up. Like, it's just... It really I always just come down to imagine if Trump had been convicted in his last impeachment and as a part of the punishment they had prohibited from running from holding public office again like we should not be here like this is like we're we're in a I mean to, to in the defense of the people that I think you think are being um, irresponsible by saying, you know, that, that this can't, this this should not and cannot go past the election. There is a legitimate, like, at least um, kind of constitutional crisis argument for him that doesn't apply to John Smith Rando guy, right? Because if he wins— and I suppose that there's between November and January where technically, you know, he's not, he doesn't quite have the full control of the levers of power, but he truly then does become above the law because he then controls the instruments of justice. As you said, like he can appoint an attorney general, he can, you know, order the case to be dropped, he can... um you know, I mean, I don't even know. He can fire the special counsel. He can fire Jack Smith. Uh, you know, and all of these things that you know in the first term were things he contemplated, but never had the cojones to do. He's not going to be constrained the second time around.
1: I agree. So one thing I, I just so we're on the same page. Like I 100% see the concern. I think there's going to be a constitutional crisis if he's elected again. I think he's going to appoint Jeff, Cla- Jeffrey Clark or somebody like that as a general. I think he's going to direct that person to kill any investigation of him or his allies. Um, and I think Jeffrey Clark is a sort of corrupt person who would do that. I think he's proven that uh, he may himself have his own criminal liability. So I, I don't disagree with any of that. I think. And he would pardon himself. Or try to pardon himself. Yeah, absolutely. He would do everything, right? All at once.
0: He would do all the things. All the things <laughs> that that he should not do. He would do. Yes.
1: Yeah, and I also think it's it's fine to advocate that a judge should consider that. But we should all recognize that this is not like something that judges do on a regular basis. This is not us just asking for everything to be normal. We're asking for him to be treated differently because of this situation because of the crisis that he created but and that he was he in the danger that he poses. But let's just be honest about what it is.
0: And let let me add one more complication, which is the Justice Department's own internal policy against indicting a sitting president. Now, that that internal memo opinion policy doesn't really bifurcate the indictment and trial phases, right? Um, but the reasoning of it would apply. I mean, is the reasoning is that you don't charge a sitting president because it would take so m- much focus and time and energy for— the president to defend him or herself, that they would not be able to effectively discharge their presidential duties. Um, and for everyone listening, this is a DOJ internal policy. It's not the law or anything like that, but it is what was guiding Robert Mueller in his decision not to conclude either way or, or to, to say whether charges were warranted in the Russia investigation but i would imagine that even quite apart from all of the corrupt you know ways that trump could leverage it there could also be for a new attorney general a reliance on that to say look a president can't be spending time defending himself in a in a criminal trial this is this is something we we looked at in 1973 therefore we need to drop the case pause it whatever it is i don't even know if you could like toll it or something like that but Um, In other words, there is a way to create actually a legal veneer or justification that isn't completely crazy town um, in terms of not moving forward if Trump were to win the election.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a very incisive comment. Uh, I think that it gets to uh, a weakness in our system of government. In other words, we always like to print. I mean, I, I think the United States Constitution is fantastic. It's an amazing document. Our system is um, remarkable in many ways. But I think it's fair to say that the people who wrote our Constitution, I should say men who wrote our Constitution, because let's face it, women were not included. The men who wrote our Constitution did not consider this sort of situation. And the reality is, I mean, it doesn't make, I don't think they considered an executive branch that would be prosecuting the head of the executive branch. They did not consider a judiciary that would be trying to imprison the executive, and relying on the executive branch to enforce that those orders ordering the you know detainment of the executive. I just think these these matters were not considered, and we can I think be honest and say that while the Constitution is an amazing, remarkable document, and our system of government is uh, you know been an enormous success, that this is a problem. And this is something that Trump is testing. And I don't think people are grappling with it in part because on one end of the scale, we have a bunch of people who are living in some misinformation crazy town, okay, right, where they're literally not even grappling with this. I mean, in their world, Trump is innocent of everything. Maybe Chris Christie's not in that town, but almost everybody on on the Republican side of the aisle is just like, oh, Trump is completely innocent of everything. Um, and then on the other side of the aisle, though, on our side, I do think we have this this sense that, like, oh, yeah, this is how our system works. Like, you just, you know, it, it's just that Robert Mueller lacked will. He had lacked guts. He wasn't, quote, tough enough. Garland wasn't tough enough. Whatever it might be. And I think that's, that's what I'm pushing up against. Like, let's get real here. Like, this is not, this is not, uh, the, the problem is not that, like, Jack Smith isn't tough enough. I actually think the guy has been incredibly aggressive. The reality is if he fails to get this done before the election it's not due to his you know lack of aggression it's simple or or something you know or or alien canon being incredibly biased it's just the the, the inherent problem in our system and we should understand that and be honest about that and figure out how to fix it and i think one thing we could talk about this later in a different context one thing that i think has been a shortcoming of the current administration and when i say that i don't i'm not necessarily saying the president himself, what I'm talking about, the Department of Justice is a failure to reckon with um, the weaknesses in our system that were revealed by the prior administration.
0: Yes, and I think those will be revealed even further. And I have to say that I am not confident that Judge Eileen Cannon is going to truly uh, take a discerning you know, view of all of these complicated different issues. I think that's it. It's sort of the other really terrible thing about this is that it's it's not a thoughtful, careful um, judge who is weighing all the factors here to begin with.
1: I think that's right. I will say though that you know the majority of the judges that I practice in front of in different jurisdictions across the country would also probably not side with this like hey we got to treat this guy very differently Mm -hmm. than everyone else and rush him to trial and that's just the reality of it um you know uh, i i just don't think that most judges would do that because it would smack of instead of saying that no one's above the law saying that like because of his status and because of the danger he poses he requires being treated less favorably to others and that's a harder argument to make. And I just think not there are a lot of judges who are I and I don't say conservative with a with a big C, I say with a small C who are, you know, conservative about the nature of their power, the set of their power, would not want to go out on a limb and say something like that. Not every
0: judge, but a lot would. Yeah. Fair enough. I just think the the appearance of it then becomes confusing. Cause I do think your average judge would at least probably be able to lay out all of the pros and cons or all the considerations. And I'm not confident that Aileen Cannon has any interest in appearing impartial or or has the capacity to do so.
1: I agree. And I will say if, if Cannon just came out and granted this sort of, you know, yeah, I'm going to delay this to 2025 right now. I think that's something most judges wouldn't do. Mm-hmm. But I don't think, unfortunately, for many people who are listening who want this to be the case, I don't think it's something that will be successfully appealed Unless she says that her only reason for doing so is the election and fairness, all those sort of goofy arguments that are very unique to Trump. If she tries to treat him differently than everyone else, it's a problem. But she would have to be a complete idiot, which I'm not. I'm not ruling out, but she'd have to be a fool to do that because they give her plenty of reasons that are pretty standard, fair. It's going to be very hard for an appellate court to say in this one rare instance, it'll be like Bush versus right, Gore. like right. This isn't presidential or only one time saying that we're looking very carefully at the schedules of these attorneys and the amount of documents and we've come That's to a, a different, different conclusion about scheduling.
0: Yeah. So, Renato, the other legal development is that the Department of Justice has changed course on its position on defending Trump in the defamation case brought by E. Jean Carroll. And originally the position was that because he made the defamatory statements while he was president, they were willing to defend him on the grounds that, you know, he was acting within the scope of his presidential duties. Um, You know, because he was making these comments, I think, in the course of reporters asking him or whatever. And, you know, I think we've talked about in previous podcasts, like, that there could be policy arguments if you think of the Department of Justice as trying to protect the office of the presidency, not necessarily Trump, that there might be good policy reasons for taking this very broad view, because, you know, again, if you use the veil of ignorance and you have, you know, pick your favorite president, okay, Obama, Biden, whatever it is, you know, you probably wouldn't want them to be having to ward off Defamation suits left and right every time they said something while they were president. Um, if they were being like um, there to kind of harass the the president and and you know take up money and time and energy, um, not that that's the case here, but it's you know as you know when you create policy, you create it in many ways for good or bad. But they've ta- they've changed course, and so what's the grounds for this? And what do you make of it? Does that? Are there policy implications to that that then opens that floodgate for future current or future office holders in ways that we might not want?
1: Very interesting. I think that um, you I think you and I were critical, at least to some extent, of the decision when it came out. And the way I had understood it was in the context of the broader sweep of where the DOJ has been on this issue in the past, because my understanding is for people who are who are more uh, focused on this area than I am, is that the DOJ is taking an extraordinarily aggressive view and expansive view of what your official what's in your quote unquote official duties. Um, and they do that, I presumably, so that the people who are, let's say, the president or some other office holder aren't trying to parse through what they're being asked questions. For example, like, is this official? Is it not official? You know, you want people to be able to just do their jobs and not think about this stuff. Um, but yeah, I thought that I thought the decision was was wrong in the first place. I mean, E. Jean Carroll was was uh, raped, sexually abused, if you want to use the term the jury uh, used in in New York. She was sexually abused many years ago, long before Donald Trump was in the White House. Um, his questions about that were questions about a private matter that had occurred many many years before. So I think that they they were wrong originally, and I think the Justice Department. You know, went out of their way to take a position where they're like, Hey, we've, we've reviewed these, these new interviews and so on. And there's new circumstances and new facts. And they've changed their mind. It's sort of a face saving move instead of saying like, Hey, we were wrong from the start. It's probably the right way to go because otherwise there'd be criticism of, uh, uh, you know, of, of their decision. So I think, you know, I think that that's sort of one, one thing that I would take away from this. Another thing is just, I I do think it's going to make it more challenging in the future when. There are edge cases uh, regarding official the official duties of an uh, office holder. Um And and not everyone is Donald Trump. I mean, many people who serve in public service are not super wealthy. You don't have don't have jets with their names on them. And uh, it's a very big deal. Very, very expensive proposition to defend yourself at a lawsuit. And for most people, it can be it can be. So 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 um, significant and overwhelming, and from a financial perspective, that you end up capitulating because you just you don't have the money to essentially you know spend several hundred thousand dollars on lawyers over a long period of time.
0: Yeah, and to the current DOJ's, um, I won't say credit, but you know, given the position they were in, they inherited that position from the Trump Justice Department, right? I mean, they. The initial position to defend Trump in this case came while Trump was president. And that reasoning carried over. So, in many ways, the Justice Department was sort of in a position of okay, we either keep going and, in a way, uphold our own institutional integrity, kind of like rather than jettisoning everything that the previous one did, which I think has a potential to cause some internal chaos and a perception that that the Department of Justice is a political, politicized arm, right? Um, so that's the one thing. Um, and the second thing that I observe, and this goes for this, that goes for Mar-a-Lago. I wrote a, a piece about this for Politico way back in the day that, you know, this these are the ramifications for electing a person to the office of the presidency, who you know lacks morals and character, because what they do is they push the envelope of institutional policies and norms in way in ways that are related to their personal misconduct, not to the powers that you necessarily are protecting for the presidency. Does that make sense? Like we know these executive privilege arguments. Um, you know Nixon is the great example here. Like, you know he's he's asserting this official uh, doctrine or privilege in order to shield himself from personal liability. And when you have that, you put institutions and officials in really difficult positions because either they have to defend it, which then is helping to protect this person from being liable in the ways that they ought to be, or they forego or they kind of relax the standards, which then opens the floodgates for it, for that new loophole to be used, you know, in ways that you may not want when, when someone's literally just trying to do their job. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it does. It's an interesting, uh, uh, an interesting perspective. I, I think that sort of more broadly, I think too, that One thing we've seen over decades is, you know, expansions of of either expansions of presidential power in certain cases, whether it's Nixon or Bush, George W. Bush, um, or um, times in which there have been maybe um, arguably abuses of power, certainly during the Trump period, I'd, I'd argue that there's many abuses of power. And there's like very little like soul searching on the part of the government federal government regarding the Justice Department. Uh, One thing I find interesting about our system is we sort of pretend that there's this continuity and we we just sort of wallpaper over the fact that, hey, the prior administration thought the president had really expansive powers um, and now we are um, just rolling with that. I I actually if I was going to be critical um, of and I kind of mentioned this in the prior segment of the Garland Justice Department, it would be that um I think Gar you know, Garland um and he, and his Justice Department have not fully reckoned with um the problems that occurred during the Trump era. I mean Trump in the Trump era, the former attorney general intervened in sentencings to help the president's friends. Yep. Intervened in investigations to help the president's friends, tried to push prosecutors not to charge cases because they were going to be harmful to the president's interests, launched investigations that were highly questionable at best and made public statements that were um, certainly outside of DOJ policy. And there hasn't been like any review of that. There hasn't been any statements about that. There hasn't hasn't been anything that's done to suggest that there that's that that there is there is anything in place to ensure that this doesn't happen in the future. And so now we're in this boat where, not, not, I mean, sure, obviously, if Trump's president, yes, all this crazy stuff can happen. But if, you know, a Trumpian is in president, is is president, let's say he's not going to pardon himself, but wants to do many of the things that Trump wants to do, there's really nothing in place. There's no serious grappling by the, the executive or by Congress to try to fix our system to ensure that there aren't abuses in the future.
0: Yeah, I agree with you, and I think that in some ways, I think this is really the the biggest flaw of Garland's approach, which I think has been to—like, I think his view is that he preserves the institution by l- glossing over these things, kind of folding them in in some ways to how—like, to not say that they're wrong, Right. So that there's, a, it doesn't look like the Justice Department has become politicized. But as you said, this then means that there's no guardrails, and this is very different than the post Nixon era when we put in a lot of guardrails. Like there was a reckoning about how all of these things, you know, the, the the rules and regulations and oversight and policies in a number of different places, not just in the Justice Department, but you know, with um, electronic surveillance and the intelligence community, all these things were reckoned with and we created all of these guardrails, the Ethics and Government Act. I mean, all of this stuff. And you're right that there just hasn't been anything that's done. And in many ways, it's actually set it up so that, like you just said, somebody could come back in and just pick up the baton where it was left off. And I think it's um, this fear of looking politicized. It's It's Garland's approach. It was Obama's approach to not in in how he dealt with the Russian election interference, which is just to keep it on down low and, you know, not look like he was putting a thumb on the scale. He was accused of putting the thumb on the scale anyway. Like, that's the dumb part here. Like, you're not actually convincing the people who believe that the deep state exists or whatever that it doesn't exist by not doing the right thing. Doing the next right thing is what I've always said.
1: Yeah, I think that like, you know, TV shows, for example, often do what we're, what we're saying that Garland did, where it's like, okay, we have a new actor who's playing this character and we're going to just say, everyone's going to pretend like nothing's changed. Yeah. Like you're, (laughs) this is the same person or whatever. I mean, I remember there was an inside joke on like, uh, Star Trek, the next generation where they're like, okay, these Klingons before looked very different in the past, in the past seasons. Like what, what change And they're going, we don't talk about no, that? No, it's like a you Jedi know, we... mind
0: trick. Like you did not see the the old Klingons.
1: Right. It's so and so yeah, it's like, but th- that doesn't work uh for for this for this problem because this is not just like a cosmetic difference. I mean, for certain things, maybe you can pretend that like, okay, yes, there's been a continuity of policy by the Justice Department or whatever, but here, I mean, the failure to grapple with the past, um, and the failure to to create safeguards really does put ourselves in, um, I think, a a circumstance where we're going to face these same problems again, because others now see the playbook. They see the weaknesses in our system because Trump, and I don't think it was planned out by Trump, I think Trump just did not understand how our system worked and was interested in maximizing power. And so I think everyone got to see where he was successful because there were not Formal structures prohibiting him from doing certain things. And and now I think there's a real playbook for the next tyrant.
0: Unfortunately, yes.
1: So Asha, you are like, you live such a fabulous life. You were just in Italy. <laughs> Now you're in, like, you were in, like, the you, the UK and Ireland. Um, yep. That's amazing. I, how do you become so fabulous? Like, what is, what is, is this what happens when you're, oh, like, featured in Vogue and suddenly, you know, you travel <laughs> around the world all the time? What's up with that?
0: Well, it wasn't as glamorous of a, a trip as it, it might have looked on Instagram. Um, we were uh, looking at colleges. Um, we went to Dublin and spent a couple of days there and looked at Trinity College. Um, checked out a lot of the sites there and um, saw the Book of Kells. So I hadn't, I'd been to Ireland before, but we actually like basically saw the Guinness Museum and then got the hell out of Dodge and and went to like Galway and the Aran Islands, which is very beautiful. Um, So it was nice to spend some time in Dublin. Um, Edinburgh was the big surprise for me. That is a stunning city. It is a stunning city. Wow. Just beautiful. Yeah. Like, I mean, I could just walk around there. I was like, how did I miss the memo about going to the University of Edinburgh, you know? Um, so that was really great. And then I sent him off. Uh, he's doing a program at St. Andrews for three weeks where he gets access to the golf course there for 20 pounds.
1: Wow. Sweet. Yeah.
0: Isn't that crazy? That's amazing. Including clubs.
1: Wow. That's awesome. Yeah,
0: I know. That is awesome. Um, and then I went and visited our good friend from law school. Um, I won't say her name, but she became the Dean of Students later. Uh, and, uh, got to spend a couple of days with her. So it was nice. It was a, a little, um, a little jaunt. And my big thing, which I tweeted about and threaded about, I guess, and I guess I want to hear your experience about threads, but, um, there's a great exhibit at the Victoria and Albert Museum on divas oh wow like it's an exhibit um on the history of divas um like going back to like famous opera singers and then how this evolved and you know all of this kind of stuff which is
1: oh awesome. wow is it like go to like elton john or aretha it franklin does. or whoever yep
0: oh my god that's awesome yeah yeah it goes from like you know the mid-19th century up until the president so that was super fun um and yeah the last time i was in london i think was right after the 2016 election so uh that was a crazy time to be there
1: that's amazing mm-hmm. all right well now you maybe want to go i will say since you mentioned threads we could talk more about it maybe next episode mm-hmm. i'm all in on threads you um, are all and in. i'm all in on threads so i i just will say that twitter's experiences. It's really hard for me because Twitter is actually um, a, a platform that changed my life. Uh, yeah, I really, same. Uh, yeah, right for you too, yeah. right? I mean, the reason that we're out here talking, we have a podcast and we're on, we're talking and doing all this stuff and writing publicly is because of Twitter. And I also really formed a community there and made a lot of friends through Twitter. Um, it's just been a life changing experience. And so leaving that behind is just devastating in many it is, ways. Yeah. Um, the user experience there is just really degraded, like putting aside Musk supporting like white supremacists and, you know, conspiracy theories and all of that. Um, you know, this whole boosting every random bozo who's got eight bucks. So I have to scroll through a bunch of comments from trolls before I can get to people who have real opinions is just really problematic uh, for me. Um, you know, that alone, I think is just a huge problem with that, uh, platform. I'm eager for there to be an alternative because I just think that we should have an alternative where anti Semitic uh, language and racist language and all that is, is properly moderated and that people aren't boosted solely because they're paying money to Elon Musk, Uh, you know, boosted ahead of people who have actual opinions. And so, you know, I have been very skeptical. I've not moved to Mastodon and posts and blue sky and all of that because i understand the way network effects work yeah
0: you need a critical mass that everybody moves to otherwise it doesn't work
1: yeah the value of a of a of a social network rises depending on how many users there are but like because meta has all of those users from instagram and they have a bazillion dollars to combat uh twitter i think that they're probably going to do okay um in being able to shift that over and so i'm like if if this fails, then we're stuck on Twitter for the foreseeable future. But I think this is our best shot of freeing ourselves from this algorithm.
0: Yeah. And it is a shame. I'm I'm with you. You and I actually started on Twitter together, I think. We were kind of I remember we both had like a few hundred and then maybe a thousand like followers. So this is right at the beginning of the Trump administration. Sure. Um as he began to uh, go off the rails and people were like, what is happening? And suddenly legal Twitter became a thing, right? Because people were like, is this legal? And we'd be like, no, (laughs) it's actually not, or it is sort of, he can do that. Um, and you know, it was really interesting to see. And I learned so much from other lawyers. I think you and I, I mean, we knew each other in law school, but I think we really kind of connected and, um, you know, started having these types of conversations around that time, partly because we were following each other on Twitter. Um, And it's just really unfortunate. I think what the tragic thing is, is that it had a lot of flaws and even in its old form, but I think largely served a great purpose of giving people real-time analysis and information of events that were happening, um, being able to identify, you know, public figures and sources that, you know, were the real deal as opposed to imposters. And it's just tragic to me that Elon Musk like kind of like, I don't even understand. I don't understand how this man is a CEO who can run anything.
1: I think the, the qualities that may make, it, you, may make you a good CEO of a rocket ship company or whatever are just very different from what you need to be the CEO of something like Twitter. Um, and I just don't think that those skills are fully transferable. And so this is you know, there are sometimes there's this myth that like, you know, having a lot of money equals merit and that there's some sort of yeah. high, like generic thing called merit that applies to every discipline. The reality is, you know, maybe I'm a great trial lawyer, but I'd be very bad at running a rocket ship company. And maybe a guy who runs a rocket ship company is not necessarily whatever he, that he runs, a, a, a car company is not necessarily the right person to. You know, be the the face of and making decisions regarding uh, a social media platform.
0: Yeah. M S W Media.